All right, let's get to it. John 3. We started last time and we were concentrating on verses 1 to 3, but let's just go back and read 1 to 10. I'll try not to overrun it again like I did last time. Starting there in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Now I want you to remember that five times in this passage we see that reference to being born again. And remember also that the Greek word here, anathen, can be translated either again or from above. So both are applicable, born again or born from above. And so Jesus is clearly stating that for anyone to enter the kingdom of God, and remember we talked about those different aspects of the kingdom of God last week. I won't go back through all of the different aspects. You can go back and watch or listen to the podcast we do. Here we are talking about that aspect of the kingdom of God that refers to the realm of salvation, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, uh, the way to God, the realm of the redeemed. That's what we're talking about when Jesus is talking about the kingdom here. For any person to enter that, they must be necessary, must be born again, born from above. This is the doctrine of regeneration. That's the big word, synonymous with born again, new birth, born from above. All that means the same thing. You have to understand that is Understanding this is at the very heart of understanding how God works in saving a sinner. Now, Christy and I gained a new appreciation in spite of some clear theological differences from that time years back when we went to Billy Graham's ministry at the Cove, a beautiful place in Tennessee. It's a great 
uh, ministry to pastors and their wives. You don't have to pay a dime to go up there. You can go twice a year. Beautiful lodges. Why haven't we gone back? I mean, who knows? We just, because we're crazy. That's why I mean, we're nuts. But uh, no doubt, uh, many times, uh, many people down through the years came to faith in Christ through Billy Graham's preaching crusades in spite of his ecumenism. I can remember as a child, my grandfather, my, my mother's father, Papa Harriet. I mean, Billy Graham was on, Jack, on a crusade. That TV was on, and you better not turn it. It, it was part of America back then. But 25 years ago, Billy Graham wrote a book that has been a staple in the evangelical world for many years. And it spun off a whole lot of other resources. And the title of that book is How to Be Born Again. And when I got to the, this part of the Wayback Machine, I remembered I preached through this just a few years back. So this is actually the third time I've been through this little section with you. But you probably need to go through it again at some point. It's so important for you to understand it. How to Be Born Again. It's a how-to book. Uh, It gives steps for how to be born again. And with all due respect to Dr. Graham, the approach, no doubt it's well-intentioned. It does call people to come to repentance and faith in Christ. But that book and its title absolutely fails to understand the principle that Jesus is teaching here in John chapter 3 in this conversation with Nicodemus. I told you this before. Grab this. The whole point of this text. The clear reason why Jesus chooses This particular analogy is that something must happen to you that you don't participate in. There is no how to be born again. Nowhere. Read it. Black and white words. Black words on white pages. Is that what Steve Lawson says? Read it. Nowhere. Does Jesus in this text tell Nicodemus, you need to do this? Nicodemus, you need to pray this prayer. Nicodemus, you need to fill this card out. Nowhere in the text does Jesus tell Nicodemus how to be born again. What he does say is you must be born again. That's not a command even. It's a statement of fact from Jesus. The analogy is so simple and so basic that it is just bewildering to me how misunderstood it has become across the evangelical landscape in America and around the world. The analogy is birth. As I stated to you last time, You did not participate in your own birth. 
There are no books out there that tell you how to be born physically. You didn't have anything to do with that. And again, I can't overemphasize it. That's the reason Jesus uses this analogy. Now, we're working our way through this text. Three simple points. The sinner's worry. We began to see that last time with Nicodemus. The Savior's word and the Spirit's work. That's our three-point outline. So let's do a quick review, very necessary, of where we were last time with the sinner's worry. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, as you know, we talked about last time, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was in that group of men who were the most devoted of all Jews to the Old Testament and every ounce, every bit of Jewish tradition. They had sadly added many laws and traditions to the Old Testament, and they were fastidious about following every single one of them outwardly. They were religious to the absolute nth degree, but they were all hypocrites. Jesus saved his most severe language and damning condemnations for the Pharisees as we looked at last week. In Matthew 23, I won't go over that again. You can read it for yourself. And Nicodemus, if you remember, is at the very top of this group. There were some 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at this time, but only 70 were chosen to be members of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court, if you will, of Israel. Nicodemus was in the Sanhedrin, but not only that, remember verse 10, he is referred to as the teacher in Israel. So he's the master teacher of all the teachers. He's the elite of the elite among the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. This man is very intelligent. And he's immensely successful. Tradition says that he was one of the three richest people in Jerusalem at this time when he was alive. His wisdom, his ability to think, and to reason and to do business had made him extremely successful and very wealthy. He had it all. And remember Jesus said, the Pharisees love their money. And of course, kind of as we heard a little bit about at the conference, they equated riches with God's blessing. So he was looked at as a man blessed of God mightily because he had so much money. Kind of like the poor people look at the prosperity preachers and they keep giving their money hoping, well, one day I'll get to be like him. And they never do. And he gets richer. Different subject. But this man had come to a point in his life where he realized he was a fake, phony. 
He knew he was a hypocrite. He had all of his religion on the outside. He was filled, as he comes to Jesus at night, he was filled with fear. He was filled with anxiety. He was filled with doubt because he knew as an older man, eternity is coming and it's coming soon for me. But here's the problem. Who does he go to? He's reached the apex of religiosity. He's the teacher of Israel, of Judaism. And then he comes across Jesus. And then he realizes Jesus is at a higher level than him. Because not only is Jesus speaking these amazing words, he's doing these incredible miracles. He's never done a miracle. He's never even seen a miracle. I mean, nobody in his nation had ever seen a miracle going 400 years back or more. So he comes to Jesus and he says, look, I mean, we know you've come from God. Remember, we being plural, so there were some others who were at least honest enough to say, yeah, because these signs, these miracles that you've been doing. And that was the statement to Jesus that was on his lips. But remember from last week, Jesus knew what was in his heart. And so Nicodemus says this, and Jesus just completely ignores what he says. Look at verse 3. Here's Jesus' answer to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What kind of answer is that? Notice Jesus is speaking in the third person here. This is Jesus saying, Nicodemus, we're fixing to have a discussion here. We're fixing to talk about theology. We're going to have a discussion about the kingdom. Nicodemus, you're not even going to see the kingdom unless you're born again. That response had absolutely nothing to do with what Nicodemus said. And the reason Jesus said this is because he knew the sinner's worry on the inside. He knew what was troubling Nicodemus. How did he know? Well, go back to verse 24 of chapter 2. He knew all men. Verse 25, he himself knew what was in man. Side bonus, Jesus is God. Only God knows the thoughts of man. Only Jesus is God. God's omniscient. That's just a little bonus you get right there. Jesus has a man in front of him. He, he's a loyal religionist. I mean, he is the legalist of legalists. He is, again, he's reached the apex of Judaism in every degree. He's now come to this point in his life when he realizes, I'm not in the kingdom. And his heart is full of fear. He has no peace. He has no sense of assurance or forgiveness. And really, on the inside, 
He's crying out, what do I do? Or what do I stop doing? Because all that he knows is a do or don't do works-based system of religion. And when Jesus is telling him nobody sees the kingdom unless they're born again, he's saying to Nicodemus, dude, you've got to go all the way back and start all over again. This statement from Jesus simply says to all the world, for all of human history, all accumulated religion, human goodness, morality, all adds up to absolutely zero with God when it comes to salvation. Never forget, for a human being to be right with a perfectly holy God and go to heaven when they die, they must have a perfect righteousness which can only come about by lifelong perfect obedience to the law of God. That is the only way you can be right with God. So obviously, whatever you or anybody else ever tries to put together through religion or human goodness or anything else with that standard is always going to add up to absolutely zero goose egg. So here is Nicodemus. He's in zero condition. And he knows it. That's the sinner's worry. Verse 3. We come to the Savior's word. And we started into this last time. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. And we learned that's the doctrine of regeneration. It's clearly a necessary condition. You have to be born from above and only God can make that happen. Now, we get into verse 4. How does Nicodemus respond to what Jesus said? Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now listen here. There have been a lot of commentators and a lot of preachers down through church history who have looked at that verse and said, man, Nicodemus just doesn't get it. I mean, he's confused. Some commentators think that he's just being sarcastic. Some people say, well, he thinks what Jesus just said is ridiculous. This, this must be kind of some kind of joke you're saying here, Jesus. Can't be born again. And they say, well, this, this just shows his ignorance and he's just sort of laughing at what Jesus is saying. But I'm here to tell you this morning, that's not what's going on. None of that is what's going on with the answer of Nicodemus. You have to understand first that Nicodemus knows that Jesus Christ has just read his mind. Start there. Notice, after Jesus responds to what he first said, 
Nicodemus does not say, why'd you bring that up? Uh, what kind of response is that to what I just said? Why are you all of a sudden talking about the kingdom in your answer to, to what I said? And he doesn't ask those kind of questions because he knows that Jesus has just read his mind. This is a powerful moment. And believe me, he fully understands that Jesus just said to him, you can't get into the kingdom by anything you do any more than you could bring about your own birth. Nicodemus fully understands that that's what he said. I want you to get this. This man, Nicodemus, lived daily in the world of analogies. The rabbis, that was their world, man. Analogies, parables, illustrations, word pictures, parallels. That's all they ever did when they talked. This is a brilliant man Jesus is talking about. He is the teacher in Israel. He has spent his entire life in theological learning and discussion and dialogue. He wasn't confused about anything that Jesus just said. He immediately understands what Jesus said. He gets it 100% and he jumps right into the third person discussion notice and says, how can a man be born when he is old? He's, I'm with you, Jesus. He's saying, okay, I'll use your analogy that you just gave me. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I mean, that proves that he totally understood what Jesus is saying. Jesus was saying, there's nothing you can do to get yourself into the kingdom. And Nicodemus gets it. He understands figurative language. He's a theologian by trade, for heaven's sakes. Rabbis and teachers use this kind of language all the time. So what does he do? Well, I'll get in the river with you here, Jesus. He takes up the analogy. And he's saying, hey, you're... What you're telling me is here, it's humanly impossible. You're, you're talking about something of that's impossible for me. So I'll use an analogy back at you. And again, Jesus doesn't tell him how to. Because there are no how to's to be born again. I mean, Nicodemus understood this better than most evangelicals, right? And further, Nicodemus was reacting as any legalist would react. I mean, are you kidding me? I've spent my whole entire life doing things to get into the kingdom. And you're telling me that the only way into the kingdom is by means of something that I have nothing to do with? And right here, we run right into headlong with the gospel of God's sovereign grace. Grace alone. Sola gratia. All Nicodemus had ever known was you earn it. You achieve it by your works, by religion, by ceremony, by ritual, 
by human goodness, by morality. That's why Jesus says, truly, truly. Because he says, look, you, Nicodemus, you've been caught up in this damning lie that you can earn your salvation by your works, and I'm here to tell you the truth. Nicodemus has had, at this point, many theological conversations in his life, but never one like this. And I'm telling you, that man was standing there that night absolutely stunned by this miracle worker that he was talking to. Now, Jesus could have said to him at this point, Nicodemus, I know this is a shock to you. I mean, I know this is a big change. And I, I, I know... I'm probably going to have to do some reprogramming of your thinking just to start to get this. But that's not what Jesus said. (laughs) I love the manliness, the masculinity of Jesus. Look down in verse 10 again. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? That's his answer, like a man. Now, There's a very good reason why Jesus says this. Because Nicodemus actually should have understood regeneration expertly. It's really inexcusable, especially as the teacher of Israel, that he doesn't understand the new birth. But Jesus is still going to give him a little help by giving him two hints. And the first hint comes next in verse 5. And the second hint comes in verse 6, which we're fixing to look at. That's how effective teachers work. They, they lead the student. They don't, they don't give them the answer right off the bat. So here's the hint. That's what I'm doing with you right now. Jesus is still talking theology here. Okay? And he's saying... Let me put it another way. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus lays out a little hint there. Nicodemus, the teacher, does this jog your memory? Water, Spirit, water, Spirit. Have you... Heard that somewhere before, Nicodemus? Now, some interpretations of this little section say the water symbolizes human birth because prior to the birth of the child, the water breaks. So you have to have a physical birth and then a spiritual birth. There have been many preachers down through church history, who have explained it that way. And I say, really? Really? Would you think about that for just a minute? Do you actually think that the God-man is having a theological conversation with the leading theologian in Israel, and he's saying, well, first of all, Nicodemus, you have to exist. I mean, you have to be a person first because non-persons can't be saved. 
That is not a very well thought out interpretation of this verse. You got to be physically born before you can be spiritually born. Now, others say that this is water baptism. That's a popular one. John MacArthur says commentators go on for pages with this one because you have to since it's not here. They say this is Christian baptism, which didn't even exist until the second chapter of Acts. And obviously Nicodemus doesn't know anything about Christian baptism to come that didn't even exist yet. No. Neither of those interpretations are right. No, this is a hint. Why was it a hint? Well, think about it. What was Nicodemus's forte? Where did Nicodemus live and move and have his being? In the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. I am certain that Nicodemus had massive sections of the Old Testament, Old Testament memorized. He hears Jesus say, Water, spirit. So in his theological mind, where would a mind like his go to? Well, I've got my money on Ezekiel 36. Figuratively speaking, I've got my money on Ezekiel 36. This chapter describes God's saving work in application to Israel. And I would note, it's the same saving work in application to the Gentiles as well throughout history. Because everybody's saved the same way, Jews and Gentiles. We're all one church, Gentiles grafted in. Different sermon. Here's how salvation works. Starting in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25. And I want you to notice with me all the I wills in these verses. They are there because clearly this is a work of God from heaven. So here we go. God speaking right here. Look at it on screen or open up your Bible. Starting in verse 25, continuing in verse 26. Then I will sprinkle what? Clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Nicodemus, is this ringing any bells? There you have the water and the spirit. In those two verses, I will sprinkle clean water on you and give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. The water and the spirit is simply a reference to the new creation, the regenerating work of God that he does in the heart of a sinner. Then verse 27, I will, notice this is God, I will put my spirit within you. Look at this, and cause you. To walk in my statutes. And you will be careful. To observe my ordinances. All through this. I will. I will. I will. Nicodemus knew these verses. This is the work 
of God alone. And then because I will, then you will. You absolutely will. When I will, you definitely will. Because God doesn't do anything wrong, doesn't make any mistakes. You will be careful to walk in my statutes. Not perfectly. Not in perfection, but in the direction of your life. Don't forget that. This would have all been, these verses, extremely familiar to Mr. Nicodemus. And he would also have been very familiar with Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20. Teaches the same thing. And I will, God, give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, meaning it's alive. It was dead as a stone. It's alive as flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. This is a divine work of God that is clearly laid out in the Old Testament. You know what God says in Jeremiah 24 verse 7? I will give them a heart to know me for I am the Lord and they will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with their whole heart. That's recreation, new heart. The Old Testament always had this in it. New spirit, water washed and clean. God is saying over and over and over again, I'm creating a new people, a redeemed people. Adam failed. Eve failed in the garden. Plunged the whole world into sin and misery. And everybody after that was born after him. I'm creating a redeemed people. Giving them a new spirit. A new heart. Washing them. Cleansing them. This is all new covenant language in the Old Testament. So. How is it. That Nicodemus knew all these verses. And more like them. And he knew that salvation based in the Old Testament was a matter of God acting sovereignly. He wills, he wills, he wills to give a new heart, a new spirit, to wash and clean the sinner from above. How is it that he got caught up in the damning lie that somehow he could earn his salvation by something that he did? And again... Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. How can you be the teacher in Israel and not know this? How sad it was that apostate Judaism had totally ignored this truth in exchange for the lie that you can earn your way by your works into the kingdom. And how many religions today do the same thing? Faith plus your works gets you right with God. Damning lie. No different in Judaism. No different in Judaism today. So that's the first hint. Let's go back to John 3, 6. And then Jesus gives him a second hint. Starts out with Jesus saying, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the second hint. He's saying, Nicodemus, there's a foundational principle here, son, that you and your system have totally overlooked. All that the flesh can produce is more flesh. You, Nicodemus, can't get yourself 
from flesh to spirit. In and of yourself, you cannot do that. Nicodemus is also busted for a failure to properly understand the Old Testament doctrine of sin, of total depravity, of the utter inability and unwillingness of a sinner in and of their own strength to do what is right before God. Nicodemus, how can you be the teacher and not know about salvation by the washing of generation, regeneration and the giving of a new heart and a new spirit? How could you not know that all the flesh can produce is flesh? Now, what would that hint draw this extremely intelligent theologian Nicodemus to? Well, how about Genesis 6 when God gives his reasons for drowning the entire world, every person, every man, woman, and child on earth died the horrible death of drowning in the wrath of God except Noah and his family. Genesis 6, 3. Nicodemus might have thought about this. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is what? Flesh. That's the problem. And that's the very word that Jesus used. Flesh. That is the word for fallen, corrupted, sinful humanness. And then down in verse 5, he shows what the, what the flesh produces in Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's about as clear a statement on human depravity as you'll find in the Bible. Jesus' point, flesh produces flesh. Well, that's all it can produce. If you're going to be in the kingdom of God, you need a new heart. Nicodemus, don't you remember the testimony of old Job? Talking about man in Job 14, 4. Who can make clean out of the unclean? No one. How do you not recall, Nicodemus, the testimony of Bildad in Job 25, verses 4 to 6? I know you know this, Nicodemus. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man that maggot and the son of man that worm? Nicodemus, I know you know that one. Apparently, Job and his friends understood the theology of total depravity. None of this is new information to Nicodemus. He knew all these verses. Like, how about, let's do another one. Isaiah 64, 6 through 8. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away look at this there is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us to the power of our iniquities nobody in and of themselves arouses themselves to take hold of you Isaiah says 
That's the Old Testament teaching on total depravity. There was a time when the Apostle Paul thought he was righteous. Remember? He said it. He thought he was holy boy. When he was a Pharisee like Nicodemus, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. But you know what? When he came to the truth, he said this, I, I count all of that righteousness that I thought I had as one big pile of manure, to say it nicely. Okay? In the original, it doesn't say it nicely. Paul knew what the Old Testament taught. And as we see in our study of Romans right now, he quoted directly from it to demonstrate the doctrine of total depravity. Nicodemus, you of all people, should know that the Old Testament teaches that salvation is a sovereign act of God's grace that he does independent of any action on man's part. And you should know that man needs a total and complete spiritual birth. He needs to be transformed. He needs to have his heart replaced. That old stony heart needs to be replaced with a heart of beating flesh, pumping with blood. His spirit needs to be replaced with a new spirit. And he needs the Holy Spirit planted within him if he's going to enter, if he's even going to see the kingdom of God. And that's something he cannot do because he's flesh and flesh produces only more flesh. Now again, I want you to recognize this is the total denunciation of every other religion in the world apart from the sovereign grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means every one of them is false. Every one of them is wrong. I'll probably get kicked off of social media at some point if I live long enough for just saying that. This is the truth. Verse 7. Jesus says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be amazed, Nicodemus. You know the Old Testament. Your problem is You've believed the damning lie of Lucifer that you can earn your way into the kingdom by your works. And this leads us to the final point. We've seen the sinner's worry, the Savior's word. This leads us to the last point, the Spirit's work. Look at what Jesus says back in John 3, 6. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Nicodemus, this is a work only the Spirit can do. Well, how does that work, Jesus? Oh, get ready. (laughs) Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born the Spirit. I mean, that should leave you dizzy right now with its clarity. That's fly over country 
for every single preacher who thinks that faith comes before regeneration, who thinks you have the faith first and then you're born again, as most evangelicals teach. At least it ought to be flyover country for them. Because this is another analogy (laughs) that takes spiritual birth clearly, completely out of the hands of the sinner. I mean, I fall very short of understanding how any person could still come up with the opposing view that faith is before being born again after reading that verse. Let me ask you, what do you do to control the wind? Nothing. You can't summon the wind. I'd like to on many days in the summer. I can't. You can't send it away. You can't write a book on how to increase the wind in your community, no matter how badly you might want it to replace fossil fuel. How much clearer could Jesus possibly be with this analogy? The wind is invisible. The wind is uncontrollable. The wind is irresistible. The wind is unpredictable. It doesn't show up because you want it to. It doesn't go away because you want to get rid of it. This is the second analogy that Jesus uses with this brilliant, sharp as attack theologian, local rabbi, in order to make him understand that this is a work in which he does not participate. Sadly, after a lifetime of striving in this, this false faith plus works system of Judaism, this, this is so new and so contrary to every single thing that Nicodemus has ever learned or believed. So what does he say? The only thing he can say, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Like, like Paul. I mean, you just destroyed my whole life, Jesus. Like Paul on the Damascus Road after Paul had that experience again. Man, all that was manure. Every bit of it. But Nicodemus isn't where Paul is yet. So what happens to Nicodemus? Well, he disappears for a little while after verse 9. But he shows back up next in John chapter 7. In this scene, Jesus is in Galilee and the Jews want to kill him. It's the Feast of Booths, very near. So they all migrate to Jerusalem. He's confronted again, Jesus is, by the Sanhedrin. And at this point, they really want him dead. He's preaching and he's teaching in the temple, for heaven's sake. Some of the people are even out there saying he's the Messiah. Some think he's a prophet. And there's a division. So you look there in John 7 and verse 43. 
So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. They wanted to seize him. (laughs) But when they got there to him, they couldn't. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? I mean, we sent you to arrest this guy. What is the deal? Verse 46, the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. We couldn't get past what he said. He paralyzed us with his words and we couldn't move. We sure couldn't arrest him. Verse 47, the Pharisees then answered them, you have not been led astray, have you? Verse 48, no one of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in him, has he? I want you to know this is about two years after Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus in John 3. Apparently at this point, it looks like Jim. Nicodemus still hadn't become a believer yet because no one of the rulers or Pharisees had believed. But, verse 50, Nicodemus steps up to the plate. Nicodemus, verse 50, he who came to him before, talking about the night we just looked at, being one of them, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, said to them, verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Nicodemus steps up, point of order. This lynch mob route you're doing here isn't right. You can't do this. I mean, even the Romans give due process to a man. This is a bold step for Nicodemus to take. When the whole group wants Jesus dead and you step up in defense of the law because you want to protect Jesus? Now, there's no indication of belief yet. And they then look at the teacher in Israel, verse 52. They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They rebuke Nicodemus with sarcasm and mockery. This is their most illustrious teacher. He's just served notice that they're leaning toward him and they hate that he's leaning toward Jesus and they hate Jesus so much that they mock the top guy, the top teacher. Now, again, two years have passed since that meeting that night. So at this point right here, there's only one year left until the death of Jesus. Now let's close for today by going to John 19. You get to chapter 19 of John. Jesus is dead. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. And then look at what it says next. Verse 39. Nicodemus, who had come to him by night, 
also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Huh? About a hundred pounds weight. Now that mixture was a powdered resin that they used to spread out on the decaying body and they'd spread it and they'd wrap and they'd spread it and they'd wrap and diminish the smell of a decaying body. hundred pounds weight, that was a lot of money. That was a massive, very expensive amount. That was used to show honor for like a king or an illustrious person. Of course, this is the king of kings. Very honorable act on the part of Nicodemus. Also very bold, Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea who had been a believer, it says, but only secretly he feared the Jews. And Nicodemus is clearly identifying himself with Jesus here. Verse 40, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now can you just imagine, just for a minute, Nicodemus, handling that body that he had spent that night talking to when Jesus destroyed his life and told him the truth in his own arms. So what happened to Nicodemus? I can tell you. God came down and gave him a new heart and made him a new creature and gave him a new spirit and regenerated him. And you know what tradition tells us? that he was the only person who stood up at Jesus' trial before Pilate and defended Jesus. Tradition also tells us he was baptized by Peter and John and that his confession of Jesus as Lord was so bold that it led him to being deprived of his office, of his position as a teacher, and it deprived him of all of his fortune, of all of his money, all of his property, all of his possessions, and he was banished from Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin that he had so faithfully served. He was reduced to living outside the uh, the city, and his family was left inside the city to live in an abject state of poverty. There's a story that says that his daughter was so poor now that he's gone out and banished outside the city that she reached the shame of digging in the dung piles for pieces of grain to eat just in order to survive, which happens in North Korea today. And a rabbi came by and saw her and felt compassion for her. And he said, who are you? She said, I'm the daughter of Nicodemus. And the rabbi said, whatever happened to your father? And she said, he became a follower of Jesus and he was banished. And the story says, the rabbi refused to help her. Some centuries later, a a man named Phonetus refers to an ancient document that records that Nicodemus was martyred in the first century for his devotion to Christ. And it says in that document, that he was beaten to death by a mob. He lost everything in this world to gain everything in the world to come. The new birth changed this man. 
Just like it changed Paul. Just like it changed me. Just like it changed you. If you've come to believe in Christ. Now what if you don't? Brother Philip, you've been sitting here for however long telling me this is a work of God, so work of God is work of God. But well, what can I do? I can tell you what you can do. You can get on your knees. You can plead with God to save you. You can plead with God to give you new life. I don't know the mind of God in his fullness. The secret things, as I said earlier, belong to the Lord. I can't reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility with my human reason any more than any other human being can. But I do know this. I know what Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me might, will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. What can you do? I'm here to tell you if you're troubled today that you don't know him savingly, you can pray to God, give me life. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I deserve hell and I have a righteousness that can't get to you. I need Jesus' righteousness. Pray that And I would not let him go with that praying until he gives you the answer and gives you the peace in your heart that he has. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous text. One of the most tremendous texts in all of Scripture. This is so important for us to learn. I pray with my feeble little self, I've been able to deepen the understanding of your people with this doctrine of regeneration. We must understand this. We must understand it. It's all a work of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Lord, we we, we must understand that after salvation is where the works come into play and they're only evidence of the fact that you worked in us. Please help us to grasp this. And if there are any here that don't know him, don't know our King Savior, Lord, please use the word preached and the power of the Spirit to save. We thank you for today. We thank you for Sunday. We thank you, Lord, for your church. We pray what we've done here today has brought you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.